HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This series is brought to you by the Restaurant Workers Community Foundation, an advocacy and action nonprofit created by and for restaurant workers. Hi, I'm Kiki Luya, and this is Shift Work by Restaurant Workers Community Foundation, a podcast bringing you stories from the heart of the restaurant industry. Each week, I'll introduce you to leaders who are working to transform hospitality. You'll also hear from folks who are in the restaurant trenches to hear firsthand some of the challenges they face. This week, I'm talking to Ben Hall, a Detroit chef, artist, and advocate for fair labor practices in restaurants. But first, meet Paula Gonzalez, a longtime staff member at Disney World, who, after being laid off during the pandemic, began working at Southern Smoke Foundation, which provides relief funding to hospitality workers. Ultimately, she returned to restaurant work and has some thoughts on the future of the industry. My name is Paola. Uh, I've been working in the restaurant that I'm at right now, too, for a little bit over 11 years. So back when the pandemic started, I like for me, it was a little hard because it's not just me. Well, I live with my husband um, and we both work in the industry like so many other people, too. I work in Disney and the park never closes. I live in Florida, too. So we, the only times that we have closed before, it's when hurricanes hit and it, even like that, it's it's been like one or twice. And so when they were saying that we were going to be closed for two weeks, we knew that something was happening or that some that it was bigger than anything else that we have experienced before. Um, and during those two weeks, every, I will say every day, something or like a different new um spread out like uh, this is going to be cut or these people is going to be let go. So for us was, I think it was at the end of the first week that I learned through online, like everybody else, about different assistant programs uh, that we were applying to. And that's how I knew Southern Smoke. At first, I didn't even know if I will get it or not, I just apply like everybody else. 
that's when I started learning about what they did, how they managed crisis over Houston. And I was really interested in what we, they were doing, at least what I can read online, because here we haven't heard about like the work that they do. They were posting that they were helping people uh, that if we were working in the industry and that if we wanted to join the team, uh, the possibility was open. So I applied to it and I got it. I was kind of excited and afraid too. I wanted to feel helpful or at least have some control on what I was doing. So that helped me uh to at least have a sense of purpose too. Uh, I was with them for uh, like four months full time. After that, it made me feel very proud to be helping others. It made me feel very blessed to be able to uh, help too, because I was helping not only the the restaurant industry or the hospital, hospitality industry in this case because there were other like uh other yeah employees like it, it didn't matter where they were from because it was helping or we were helping um everybody around the US too but I was concentrating helping um some of the Spanish speaking cases it's been very hard for whoever works at any any position on the restaurants too. So just to try to, hopefully that will change and people realize that it's, if we're there, because that's why a lot of people left the industry too. So hopefully they will, that's that's my hope for, that everybody can be a little kinder to everybody and learn from this past experience and and try to be more supportive of whatever is your local, you know, restaurants or community at the end of the night. Ben Hall is a Renaissance man. Born and raised in Detroit, he owned Russell Street Deli and has been a longtime advocate for workers' rights, fair wage, and systems change. While at Russell Street, Ben launched a healthy school lunch program for Detroit school children, 88% of whom qualify for free lunch. He's also a musician, an artist, and founder of Baptism.com, the largest Black spiritual music archive in the world. And he's currently a research fellow and professor at Bennington College. Ben, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Kiki? I'm good. Um, I so I I think it's best to just kind of start out with what you've got going on because typically you have million and one projects and I'm really curious and I think maybe listeners want to know what are you working on right now. Well, uh, do you want food stuff or do you want other? <laughs> no, I, I want all. I want. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Food <laughs> Excuse me. So food-wise, uh, I run uh, what can only be described as a pop-up at a Spotlight, which is a house music, primarily black house music bar in Detroit. So currently I'm down in Nashville working on a project with 
longtime friend and collaborator, Matthew Ritchie, who is a visual artist. And he is working on a sort of tent revival based on Paradise Lost. Um, so it'll be Paradise Lost told through popular song and not like popular song over the ages, but like popular song right now. So Paradise Lost, while a lot of people, it is a retail, itself is a retelling of the Bible, which itself is a retelling of earlier myths and stories. Um, Paradise Lost is really a breakup story. (laughs) Um, Lucifer breaks up with God in a very demonic and demonstrative way. Uh, Maybe that's why demon is the uh, root word of both of those words. (laughs) And um, Adam and Eve, of course, have a pretty uh, well-known breakup in that story. Uh, But it's also like heaven uh, breaking up with the angels and the earth breaking up with God uh, after the you know, they bite into the apple because Adam's basically like, well, I don't want to live without you. So I'm going to eat this apple too. So what I am charged with and tasked with is uh, partially like event planning in terms of the day long event that we do as part of the Tennessee Triennial here in Nashville um, and figuring out what all the possible songs are to tell this story over four stages and 10 hours. Basically, you know, the, the reason that Lucifer fights God is that he he's hurt because God, like, has equal lo- love for everybody. And Lucifer is but like, yo, I, I'm the dude. <laughs> so why aren't you showing me a little extra love? And that's why he's hurt about it, because, you know, God, God's love is thought to be equal. And so he doesn't want it to be equal because he doesn't feel like he's an equal to all the other angels. It only heaven exists at that point. So, you know, and the angels don't necessarily even have souls. They're just like existing in heaven. They have the whole universe. But Lucifer's like, ah, I want a little bit more. So thinking about that in terms of equity uh, and equality and privilege, you know, it really definitely uh makes me think about the way in which we kind of invest in each other and what that balance looks like in terms of credit and privilege and responsibility and culpability and make you know when that equity doesn't occur mm. you know i'm actually i'm really glad that i asked the question you know what are you working on now but also outside of food simply because so much can influence how we operate within the food system that has nothing to do right with the food system but also everything to do with the food system for listeners who you know aren't familiar i would love for you to tell us a little bit about your work with russell street um because we're going to be peering into the future of restaurants and i think that they're, you know, just being a Detroiter myself, you laid the foundation for so much of, you know, what we consider to be equity in the restaurant space. And also, I think you and I both know it, we only really scratch the surface. So tell me about Russell Street. I know you started out as a dishwasher and eventually bought the restaurant. Walk us through that story. Okay. Well, first of all, I'm flattered that you would think that I'm a leader in any sort of way. Um so Russell Street was a 60-seat uh, primarily lunch restaurant when I bought it uh, with a partner in 2007. Um, I was the chef uh, the entire time from 2007 to 2019 when it closed. Uh, 
we were priced out. We had a very uh, public, I mean, I mentioned this not just for the the dramatic narrative, uh, but we were priced out by a insidious landlord who, you know, in a way, if you look at it from just a real kind of how do you get your money back out of a space, you know, he was doing what he thought he needed to do. But the end game of that is that we were able to, at the very end, figure out a lot of things that we had done over the years that a lot of people had done. So going back to 2007, we bought it in August 2007. And that's basically, if you look at, <laughs> if you look at Lehman Brothers, uh, that's right when Lehman Brothers starts to tank. So basically, like once they said they gave someone like me a loan to open up a restaurant, I, I'm pretty sure I tanked the entire American and possibly global economy. Uh, they were like, things are really upside down right now. Um, but the point of buying it was to be able to sell it. Uh, I had a record store then, which I was very happy in. I was a touring musician. I really enjoyed my kind of quiet and quaint, uh, <laughs> non-competitive life. <laughs> um, and then I bought the restaurant with the idea of basically getting, you know, if it's a ship, basically it was like, a ship that's always at dock. <laughs> it doesn't really sail anymore. So I was like, okay, well, we'll get new sails. We'll clean the barnacles off. You know, we'll shine everything up. Uh, and then we'll sell it to some other unsuspecting fool who wants to buy their job and work at a 1% profit margin for the rest of their days. Um, but as we were cleaning it up, of course, the economy's tanking and we're doing better. And so at the end of the first year, even though we were really just... Uh, plugging holes, we were up about 35%. So sales then were around $600,000 a year. So we see a real boost up to around $700,000 a year. And for the first three or four years, we were like at 30, 35% increase, which is nor, I mean, that's like, that's something that would be expected out of certain businesses. But in the restaurant business, even with, you know, as I probably, you know, preaching to the choir here, and I'll come back to preaching to the choir. But the idea is that, you know, if, even if you look at the NRA, it's that a uh, restaurant without booze is working at a 1% to 3% profit margin and a restaurant with booze is working at a 5 to 10% profit margin. And so that's a question of scale, typically. Um, if you can't scale enough and you can't pay your employees cheaply enough, like that's the only flexible cost you have, you're just screwed. So with the idea that we were going to buy the restaurant, fix it up, clean it up and sell it, make it a saleable entity. Um, I was still doing all of the things that I thought should be done in a humane way. Uh, it's, it's a very odd thing when you work in a dish tank or like when you own a restaurant where you used to work in the dish tank for years, um, for years and years and years kind of bent over. Like that's not something I think a lot of people experience. And it's also something that I think is unique in many ways to the restaurant industry where like, if you go to a hospital, like the janitor is not going to be operating on you one day, right? It's not like there's no ladder in a hospital. Uh, you know, maybe in the film industry, you know, the PA might become the head of the studio, but for the most part, most businesses don't operate like that. The person who's the lowest on the totem pole can't even imagine themselves to be the highest on the totem pole. So a lot of it was just like, once I got into that position, it's like, well, how do you treat people? Um, and at that time, as you know, uh, you know, Detroit, I mean, Detroit's still totally screwed up, but I think at that time, the average income for a family of four was around 23 grand. 
Um, it's up at like 29 or 31 now, I think. Um, and that's partially because a lot of people who are super broke and in super bad condition are leaving the city because it's too, it's too difficult to survive. And then the kind of gentrify, you know, if somebody moves in, if a family of four who makes 31 grand a year moves out and one single person who's making 75 grand a year working at Quicken or something moves in, that helps change those numbers to make it look like it's better. But we're still looking at the, you know, averages, uh, around 31 grand for a family of four. So if you take 31 grand for a family of four and you think about the one to 3% profit margin, because both of those numbers seem so negative, you also have to understand, I mean, one has to understand that for somebody to operate at a 3% profit margin means that there's a lot of people who are working at negative 20 and negative 30 over years and years and years. And of course, you know, with usually enough drinks and late enough at night, the few times when chefs and owners usually get together and they actually tell the truth and they're not just kind of spouting off about like, yeah, totally. It's the best quarter ever. And I just like bought a new thing. Like when the thing is over, you know, the proudest moment that I have about when the restaurant closed is actually that we didn't really have any debt. Um, you know, but most people, that's that's huge you know a lot of people who've closed over the last couple years have you know three to six to eight hundred thousand i mean i have a lot of friends who are like crushed with depression because they took out debt and you know they had good spots and they were anchor businesses and someone made them a good deal but all of a sudden you know that landlord who thought that they were essential to making their development project work you know isn't letting them out of the lease uh, and of course, you know, the equipment is essentially worthless. Uh, once you <laughs> take it out of a restaurant, there's no chance that you can do anything good with it. So there's not a lot of economy. So when the restaurant actually closed, I was working very diligently to open up a new restaurant where we own the building, but then of course COVID hit. Um, so now I'm just trying to figure out what I do with all this embodied knowledge, um, in terms of, you know, being a chef. But also in terms of kind of the way that equitable practices work within a place, in terms of interfacing with customers and employees, what the employee expectation is, you know, what what you can do for an employee who's working a, you know, thirteen to eighteen dollar an hour job, and if that's even real. I was just in West Virginia over the weekend, and uh, all the signs there say, you know, now hiring all the fast food places now hiring. $10 an hour, which is odd because like in Detroit, you know, fast food is $14 an hour and Charleston's not so much cheaper than Detroit. And I had always kind of seen that on the horizon that, you know, sooner or later, my employees are going to be like, this isn't a good, this isn't a good model for my life. Right. Like, you know, and I mean, this is where my, oh, I should mention that I'm currently a professor at Bennington college. Um, <laughs> where I teach uh, courses in the Center for the Advancement of Public Action. And just this last week, we were going through exploitation and surplus value. And one of my students looked like she was going to lose her mind because real, what surplus value basically is, is like how long, how much of the day you have to work for the landlord or the employer to get to give them their value. And then how much do you get for yourself? Right. And so if you're working a $12, $12 an hour job, mostly you're giving, 
your owner, your employer value, even though, and this is where I think the restaurant industry is very difficult because, you know, any restaurant owner is typically embattled, (laughs) right? Like they're in bad shape, like they're struggling. So when someone shows up and they're like, I think I deserve a dollar an hour more, you're like, yeah, of course you do, but I do not have $40 a week to give you, right? So, so you kind of got to like reverse engineer that to think about like, well, how do we work smarter? How do we work more efficiently? So at least you can have more energy because as a worker, I really got down to the minutia of this, which is that, you know, if you're, if you're someone who works a, let's say a $12 an hour job and you don't really have or 12 to $15 an hour, and you don't really have the opportunity to move up or you know do anything except basically a lateral move to a very similar job making very similar money uh and of course losing your seniority by moving it's like well what option is there to like better your life or make more money the only thing you can do is take another part-time job work about 20 more hours a week which means that you have no time for yourself you're totally burnt out you're not really performing well at either jobs i mean it's not the models that exist so far and i knew this because i worked in that same dish tank i you know i peeled potatoes for that place i knew exactly what the waste strategy was uh for the restaurant i knew how much waste there was i knew how much theft there was as an employee and then taking it on as an owner you realize well like these aren't these aren't quick solutions these are solutions where you're going to have to entirely like remodel how employees think about their job, think about their time, think about showing up, think about what that expectation is. And also I always try to do it in a way like, well, you don't have to like show me gratitude. You have to show yourself like you're here to get money. And so however efficiently you can get that money, however clean, however open, that's your job. And I can help guide you through that, but I can't be the person who's like, you can't demand somebody be nicer really, or demand that they be nicer to themselves or nicer to their time or treat themselves more fairly. So you have to create a kind of model where some people get it. And then those, the customers or sorry, the employees who don't get it can look at other employees and be like, damn, he seems like he's doing pretty good. Or he's taking a college class or his wife's doing a little bit better. And again, going back to that $31,000 number, I mean, this is generational poverty of which, you know, I grew up in a trailer and some housing projects and some other things with, you know, single parent, single mom, uh, not a lot of cash, not always power, not always heat. Um, and I know that for someone to, you know, my mom was always working three jobs and we still ended up there. I mean, she stayed working. So if she stayed working, doing, you know, kind of using all of the options that she had to create her own personal economy and she was still coming up short then you know and that model hasn't essentially changed under capital capital is only a little a little slicker about how it treats labor um then how can we have an expectation that someone's actually going to buy into that system and want to work with us it's just you can't really i don't i think it's very hard to honestly it's where it's where the owner automatically becomes like a like almost a feudal lord uh, saying like, yeah, like, well, if you want another job, go get another job, but you can't get another job. So you're going to have to work for me for 12, 15 hour. And I know that you're just working 40 or 50 hours a week to stay in poverty. Like, I don't want to do that anymore. 
<laughs> I didn't want to do it when I was working there and I didn't want to do it to my employees. So, you know, a lot of uh, deeply emotionally massaged conversations had to happen between the employees until it was kind of mandated about what the expectation is and how it worked was. And then, of course, I ended up working with Rock and Ray's. Um, I was a founding member of Ray's. Uh, and then, you know, working with Davida at Food Lab and basically just trying to say, like, if you're going to open up a business, you can't open up a business which keeps people in poverty. And that's a hard thing for a lot of people to learn uh, when growth and creativity and the, you know, birth of like mid the middle class through ownership, property ownership is the thing that's going to be like you know, get you the halo and get you into kind of like some like country club heaven version of America. Well, if that all means that, you know, you have 20 employees who won't ever go to college and their kids are going to be, they keep, they really can't afford kids. And even if they have kids, their kids are going to be in exactly the same position. They are 25 years down the road. Like that's not, I mean, that's where the industry for me, you know, like when I, when someone you know, is flexing or they're talking about their, their place. Or I see some, Oh, I got this award on Instagram. I'm like, how much do you pay, pay your employees relative to the universal living wage in your area? And what's your debt load? <laughs> That's all I want to know. I don't want, I don't want to see what the food looks like. I don't want to, I don't even care about the sourcing. Those are the two I don't need primary your Instagram handle. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't care about any of that. I want to know what your debt load is. Um, and how much you're paying people because otherwise that to me is just smoke and mirrors. So, you know, going back to the kind of originality of Russell street, like we really tried to make something that was incredibly humble and humane, which, you know, that's not really the name of the game in America, but that's definitely not the name of the game in chefing industry. So it's like, you know, I I was never going to win an award for, I mean, I'm very happy to say this, but, uh, Kim Chu from Food Issues Group once said that, you know, she was like, God, I miss the deli. And I was like, yeah. And she was like, that was the platonic ideal of a tuna melt. <laughs> you know, like, that's all I wanted to do is like make these things where people would come in and be like, I guess this is what a scramble is. I thought a scramble was like, you know, some had to have truffle oil and everything. And it's like, you know, but it's a little bit brown. Like, you know, we were just really trying to take care of the product in a way that we would be able to present to people and have them be satisfied, pay a good fee, which would cause a good revenue. But of course, over time, that meant that, you know, I think for the last six years that I worked there, I didn't take a wage. Um, and my wage was, you know, getting, I would drive a company car and I mean, which was my car <laughs> uh, and, you know, it covered car insurance and health insurance. And, you know, maybe there would be a little cash here and there, but, you know, and this, this skips to the end of it. When, um, when the restaurant did close, I was interviewed by the then uh, kind of local uh, food critic. And he said, you know, how long do people stay at the restaurant? And I was like, I don't know, 30 minutes. And he was like, no, your employees fool. And I was like, oh yeah, our employees. I was like, I don't know. I would have to look that up. So I go through all of the applications and the, our average tenure for an employee was seven and a half years so i was like damn that was a long ass time no wonder i'm like no wonder my labor cost is so high 
and then I and then I go back and look at it, and I, I you know, I love checking the NRA web, website um, because you know sometimes they're like. I think the NRA is really like, this is a really hard industry, so you're going to have to be cruel. And they're on, they're honest about some of their figures and where that data comes from. And they said that the, and the NRA website at that time said that the average tenure for a restaurant worker in America was 29 days. So 29 days. You 29 know, here days. I am thinking you were going to say like six months or something like that. Wow. That's what I thought days. it was going to be, like three and a half months, something. But right. yeah, 29 something. days. Wow. And again, when you end up with a figure like that, you know, kind of immediately that, I mean, without, without any doubt at all, that those people who are, you know, at 29 days, it means that there's a lot of people who are not finishing shifts. I mean, if you've worked at a restaurant for, I mean, I've definitely walked out like, Hey, I'm going to take my cigarette break. Why are you taking your back? back. Yeah. Yeah. Like (laughs) this job sucks. This place is a terror dome. I don't want to live this Mad Max lifestyle uh, that you seem to have developed in your kitchen. I mean, I've worked, walked off plenty of jobs and I never, you know, my employees would be like, so-and-so didn't come back for lunch and they didn't even, you know, they got a sandwich to go. And I'd be like, well, you know, like you're good at your job. They came in here and they looked at it and they said, this is like, this is work. This is evil, evil work. We got to serve, you know, 1600 people a week we have to do all of this work. Why would I want to do this? And I think I might've mentioned this to you before Kiki, but, uh, Brandon, uh, sang at who owns Michigan farm to freezer, uh, right. Kind of at the beginning of COVID he called me and he was, it was right after the restaurant closed. And he said, you know, are you any of your people looking for jobs? And I was like, Oh, I mean, I don't know. I can reach out. Why? What's up? And he said, <laughs> And it's just, I mean, this is what I always thought was going to happen. And it's sad for him, but meant that I had figured something out early, which is that he said, you know, I'm paying people $16 an hour, but we had to close down for a couple of weeks because of the state mandate. And they realized that they were, you know, paying 14 an hour in childcare. So they're coming to work for eight hours and their net is $16 for eight hours work. So why would I want to come back here? Why would I want to do this work? I could just stay at home and work it out, which is what I always imagined, you know, people would figure out at one time with the job. You know, I was, I'm, you know, it was always difficult for me to see somebody who is struggling, uh, show up for work for the first day or the first week or the first month and be like, I just can't keep up. And I'm like, well, yeah, I know. And they'd be like, this job is too hard. Like we were going to have an argument. And I'm like, no, you get no argument from me. Like it's hard work. But, you know, this is a place where you can actually move up. You can learn things. I will be happy to like give you a reference. I'll be happy to call any of my colleagues and get you a job somewhere else, somewhere closer to home, somewhere where maybe you can move up if there's no place for you to move up now. Like this isn't this isn't something where it's going to be you're locked into this forever it's just a place for you to learn how to work. But when they learn, you know, what the actual work is, they don't want to do it. And that to me is totally appropriate. I think, you know, and maybe we've discussed this before, but when I talk to people who are in their fifties and sixties, you know, typically white dudes, but you know, some other folks they'll say, Oh, you know, like when I was coming up, I did all these things and I was cutting lawns and I was, you know, delivering the newspapers and I was, 
you know, all this happy stuff. And I mean, I don't know how it is for other people, but I know in Metro Detroit, like where I grew up and in the city of Detroit, where I grew up, like those jobs are not children's jobs. Right. You know, I think there's a few things that you've said that are really interesting and I kind of want to circle back to them. One is, I just want to really point this out, is that you have been a worker, right? You have been a restaurant worker from going from dish to an ownership position. And that perspective is really important because I think that you know, as we kind of talk about it, I wanted to bring up, you know, lessons learned through the pandemic, but really the conversations that we're having right now predate the pandemic in so many ways, right? A lot of these conversations about, you know, wage fairness and equity and generational wealth, I mean, I think that for some restaurants, there is a conversation around like, oh, the pandemic, um, you know, brought these issues to light, but really, the issues have always existed, right? Um, but maybe it didn't necessarily, it wasn't on this tipping point for restaurants where they're now having trouble getting workers to come back, right? They're thinking, okay, $16 an hour. You mentioned, mentioned Michigan Farm to Freezer. And like when you really start to do the math on that, and, and I think when workers have a second to do the math on that, well, either they're furloughed or laid off or whatever it is, um, for certain periods of time, it's like, wait, how is, how is this worth my time? Um, and so I, you know, I want to talk about worker power and kind of what that looks like, um, you know, coming out of the, I shouldn't even say out of the pandemic, we're obviously very much still in it, but where restaurant workers and also restaurants are trying to figure out something creative, right? How do we essentially, as restaurateurs who know that we're operating on, I mean, 5% profit at best, right? Maybe some, maybe some are really lucky and they have like eight. I mean, they're, they're killing it in my opinion. <laughs> they're, totally right? killing it. they're totally killing it. But I'm like, I think a lot of us are looking at like one to three, like, how do we start to make these changes when we don't really have that wiggle room? And when, you know, in the old traditional models of running restaurants, your only wiggle room is your labor, right? And then workers who essentially have, you know, they, I think that the record, the recognition of the power that they have is so important. And so how do they harness that in order to um, kind of push the industry towards, providing better conditions for them like where's that sweet spot well i think the first thing that i think about is scale i mean i think that uh the industry historically you know relative to rent uh like i think the scale is typically wrong right this idea that you're going to be open i mean the scale of labor for the week and even scheduling but, you know, at the restaurant, people would always say they'd come in and we'd be super busy and they'd be like, oh, my God, this is a gold mine. And I would say, well, you got one part of it, right? It's a mine. But, you know, we're in here like trying to find gold dust and put it together to have a little nugget that we might have left at the end of the week or the end of the month. But, you know, there's plenty of years where we, you know. We were like, well, we were like $1.618 million and we had 22 grand left at, you know, at the end of the year and we didn't own the building. So even when it closed, there's nothing left to sell. Nothing. I mean, it's just like, I mean, I gave, you know, what I could away. Uh, but for the most part, we just left it in the building. 
um, for the landlord to take and theoretically for, you know, the next person to try to, you know, kind of sift through the wreckage, but, you know, running the pop-up, um, you know, we would always, the, the times where we would make extra money would be with catering, like catering would save us every year. And then we opened up a soup company. Then I opened up a separate soup company. But of course, that's a different kind of work. You know, like people would show up to the soup company and be like, this is factory work. And I'd be like, uh-huh, you know, it's definitely work. But when to go back to the kind of customer who comes in and thinks that I'm crushing it, I'd be like, oh, yeah, man, we're killing it. We're killing it for this like 48 minutes a day. And the other 23 hours a day, we're empty and we're not making any money, you know, and it's the same. I mean, we were because we were in the Easter market, which I don't know, has 25,000 to 35,000 visitors. People would be like, have you been, I've been to your restaurant. It's so busy. You know, I'd meet people and they would think like, I'm crushing it. If we're only really busy on Saturday, if we're busy one hour a day and we're really busy on Saturday at the deli, well, we got to, we should scrap those one hour days. We should just get rid of them because why do we, but then, you know, then there's this labor thing about like, well, how much are people going to work? So then it's like, well, maybe we should have only been open Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Wednesday, we're just prepping. And then we have a four day, 10 hour a day work week. So people have more time, they make more money and we're compressing it. So maybe we're actually making a little bit less. But, you know, those first, I would always say, like, those first five days of the week, that's just paying bills. <laughs> we're just going through the motions. So it's not until Saturday that we're actually, like, making any net. So I think, you know, there's, there's the scale issue right there in terms of, like, you know, scale of time. How much time do you spend actually doing the thing? And when do you make the money? Right? And if you don't make that money... You just go out of business or you keep aggregating debt over, over time. The universal living uh, income for Detroit was like 1180, which is basically what I was paying my dishwasher. I was paying them 12. And in New York, it was like 2350. <laughs> so, you know, everybody's applauding Danny Meyer. And I was like, um, excuse me. Uh, <laughs> you know, so you can like throw that number out there. And Pete, the New York restaurateurs were like, oh, he's paying his dishwashers, you know, $11 an hour. Good for you, Danny. And I was like, wait, what? This is all upside down, but that's the rate. And no one knows how to ask for more. No one's willing to pay more than $19 for a margarita. So you're, you know, that's already at the high end of margarita pricing. But, you know, if you don't have scale and the scale's not correctly attributed and you have all these people handing you money and trying to get you to be, when the restaurant closed, I mean, I had every kind of person asking me to like move the deli here, open a restaurant here. And I would be like, well, what are the rates? And, you know, it was never in my favor. It's in their favor. So what do I get if I fail? I get like lifelong debt, crippling depression. Like, no, I don't believe I don't believe in that. So part of it is to be able to extend to operators and restaurateurs and chefs that in fact, you know, if you're going to do it right, you have to own a business, you you have to own the building, or you have to be so kind of gorilla that you're not going to basically be left in a state of neglect by capital when you're not succeeding, which is, you know, capital kind of anoints winners and keeps re-anointing them.
which is why you see people who have like one good restaurant, not even figure out that one good restaurant. They're opening restaurant two. And it's like, well, shouldn't you just figure out how to make restaurant one really good? But, you know, those aren't the claims of content inside of social media or the newspapers or restaurant awards either. So it doesn't really work. Yeah. You know, you, I, I want to ask really just an example aside from, we talk a lot about wage, but there are other ways you'd mentioned kind of the phrase surplus value, right. From like the worker's perspective earlier. And I, and I want to kind of gas you up for like a real quick second. Cause I think that seriously, because as Detroiter to Detroiter, I think that what people don't realize is that, you know, I was kind of part of um, the newer wave, right, of restaurants that were like, you know, oh, you know, we came into Detroit, and I'm, I'm just, you know, talking very frankly about, I'm really proud of the things that I did with the, with the spaces that I had, but also Russell Street, you were at, you were such an innovator in a lot of ways in the space when talking very openly and honestly about what equity really means, what is, you know, responsible business ownership, all of that. I mean, years and years behind a lot of us. And, um, and also in Detroit, which is like the epicenter of labor, right, and labor laws in the entire country, I think that those conversations, it's like, it's, they're so important. And I think that us as Detroiters have them all day. But yet, you know, maybe some places around the country, let's say Omaha, Nebraska, like, they might not be having these, you know, at 2pm on a Tuesday, like, you know, over like brunch or whatever it is. And I, I'm really curious, just if you can give an example that's not anything to do with wage whatsoever, but of how Russell Street being so innovative in how you took care of your employees, how did you create surplus value for those employees? Uh, I would always tell them to go home. <laughs> like, I would literally just be like, <coughs> every bit of, you know, I mean, a lot of it's like dumb kind of cliche you know, work smarter, not harder stuff, right? Because I think the claims of restaurants is that it's it's going to be intense. And I would be like, yeah, don't lift with your back. Lift with your legs. Do it. Go get somebody else. Do a two-person lift. Like, you don't have to prove anybody that you can move 50 pounds of onions. I don't care about that stuff. So on one hand, you know, there's like a real can-do-it attitude, but it's like aggregating all of those shortcuts and hacks even if you're not doing labor, even if you're just working a counter job, counter jobs are hard. It's hard to be on your feet for nine hours straight or, you know, whatever, 30 minute break, big deal. But, you know, that's where I think like that what we actually offer is social and it's creative. I mean, you know, not creative in the sense that people are like, Oh, you know, chefs are artists. And I'm like, I'm not an artist. I'm a factory worker. You know, I'm trying to make the same beautiful painting over and over and over again. And I'm trying to match it. Somebody doesn't come back for three years because they moved out of Detroit and they come back. I want it to be, even though I'm using like all different product now, I want it to be that same tuna melt or that same turkey sandwich because, you know, the industry's changing, the products are changing. And I essentially have to float the recipe to nail it to their memory of it. Like it's some like deep, deep psychological shit. So when it comes back to employees, what I'm trying to get them to do is like to imagine themselves 
in this situation and then imagine themselves in a situation that's further than the space that they're in right now. There's nothing in this restaurant that I haven't fixed or touched or done. So I can tell you that, you know, there's basically, you have three options. You have the option to like figure out how to make this job better for you now. You have this to figure out how to make this job better for you in a way that it can help you get to some other place that you see, see yourself at in the future, whether it's in the restaurant industry or not, or you can get out now, right? But you have to be honest about what those goals are. And it's, you know, when we talk about goals, you know, you draw a business plan. You can't say that my real goal is like, I want to be left alone and, you know, work in, you know, I don't know, whatever. I don't want to cut or slice corned beef for the rest of my life. That's not what most people want to do. But when, you know, coming face to face with the reality of what that is, is paramount, I think, in terms of like helping people be generous, not to the customer. Like we, that's what we keep talking about. Hospitality, hospitality, hospitality. And then like, if you're a little deeper, you're thinking generosity, generosity, generosity. And it's like, well, we're not being generous to the owners and we're not being generous to ourselves. This series is brought to you by the Restaurant Workers Community Foundation an advocacy and action nonprofit created by and for restaurant workers. We are a nationwide community dedicated to making the restaurant industry more hospitable for everyone. By addressing quality of life issues that disproportionately affect restaurant workers, 40% of whom live on poverty level wages, we hope to strengthen the workforce and increase opportunity for advancement in the industry to more people. The restaurant industry is notorious for low wages, poor job mobility, high turnover, and burnout but it doesn't have to be that way. Visit restaurantworkerscf.org to learn more about what we're doing to make change and join us. Welcome back to Shift Work. On this episode, we've been looking towards the future of the hospitality industry. We'll get back to my conversation with Ben Hall shortly. First, RWCF's co-founder and board president has some resources to share. Hi, I'm John DeBerry. Did you know that you can find out what a living wage means in your county with MIT's Living Wage Calculator? A quick search reveals that a single, childless worker in Birmingham, Alabama needs $17.66 an hour to make ends meet, despite a $7.25 minimum wage. A family of four, with two working parents, needs the equivalent of $24.29 an hour in Atlanta. And a single parent with two children needs at least $44.36 to get by in Portland, Oregon. See how your wages stack up at livingwage.mit.edu. All right, Ben, um, let's take a moment um, and just kind of go through, this is our rapid fire question segment. Um, So literally, I'm going to ask you five questions. Um, You have a minute tops to answer each one of them. They're pretty quick. Um, So are you ready to do it? Yep, I'm ready. Bring it. Cool. Okay, here we go. Question one, what is a restaurant you're most excited about in Detroit? Ooh, ooh. Scotty Simpsons. Oh, yeah. Okay. (laughs) Nice. Um, Number two, what's the best way for workers to advocate for better public policy? Collective bargaining. Boom. That's a good one. Number three, name one book or author that has informed your views on labor. Oh. 
I'll just say group, uh, Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement. Nice. I actually thought you were going to say um, the pedagogy of the oppressed. That will, that will go second or time. Go second. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I knew your answer. I thought I knew your answer before you answered. Okay. Number four, um, artists you'd most like to collaborate with. Oh, living, I'm assuming. Um, no, either. I, th- I think either. Ooh. Pass. I'll come back. Oh, okay. <laughs> Last one. Tell me um, one quick story or thing that gives you hope for the future. Uh, collectivity and care. Every time I see it, I just am like, people, people know how to do this. This is real. This is, this is implicit to who they are. Yes. Um, okay. Artist alive or dead, who you want to collaborate oh, with. This is so, 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 man, I wish I would have been prepped on this one. <laughs> That's uh, the point though. I'm going to catch you off guard sometimes. Uh, I'm going to, I can change it. No, oh, no, go no. I'm going to, I'm going to go. It's a bit of a deep cut, but, uh, Okay. Uh, Rear Crit Tiravanija, who's a Thai artist who makes soup <laughs> close to my heart. Oh, wow. That's a wonderful answer. Okay. That's, and uh, you caught me off guard with that one. I love it. <laughs> cool. Ben, thank you so much. You know, I could talk to you literally for hours and hours and hours, and we do this. So, yeah, um, it's I true. Really, I could run really... my mouth for hours. So, also true. <laughs> I really appreciate your time. This has been wonderful. I think you have shined so much light on, um, you know, where the restaurants and where restaurant workers need to go moving forward. And um, I think I'm going to, I'm going to just uplift collective bargaining. I think that was a wonderful way to kind of end it and put a little bit of food for thought in people's minds. So thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Kiki. And I mean, just to go back to collective bargaining, you know, very few things are created, you know, by people just solely on their own, no matter how much that's a part of what we think, you know, like people aren't alone. They're usually using products that other people made or they're doing other things, but it's always people who've done things together and then people kind of building on that. So it's always together. Thank you for listening to Shift Work. To learn more about RWCF's work and donate to the cause, visit www.restaurantworkerscf.org. Thanks for joining us on the podcast and in the work as we bring you stories from the heart of the restaurant industry. Links to the organizations and resources mentioned in this episode can be found in our show notes. I'm your host, Kiki Luya. Our engineer is Liam Warner, and the show is produced by Hannah Forden and Caroline Hatchett. Shift Work is produced in collaboration with Heritage Radio Network, America's pioneer food podcast network. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.